This podcast is a 98 Studios production. Hey, it's Christy. Welcome to Do the Work. Today and every day, we'll talk about things that really matter. You, your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences. We'll discuss what emotional work looks, sounds, and feels like in our day-to-day lives. Relationships are what matter most, and they can be complicated. If you'd like a better connection with yourself, with others, and with your God, you are in the right place. So glad you're here. Welcome back to Do the Work. Guess who's back with me today? Jeff Stewart. Thank you, Jeff, for so generously being willing to come and chat with me again. Oh, yeah. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So happy to have you here. Jeff Stewart is a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice in St. George, Utah, and with 25 years of experience. He specializes in helping couples heal from the impact of sexual betrayal and broken trust. He is the co-author of Love You, Hate the Porn, Healing a Relationship Damaged by Virtual Infidelity, and the creator of The Building Trust Bootcamp. He has a podcast, From Crisis to Connection, which he hosts with his wife, Jody. He completed a degree in communication studies from Brigham Young University and a master's in marriage and family therapy from Auburn University. Jeff and Jody have been married for 27 years, and they are the parents of four children. And if you want to know just a little more about Jeff, be sure and listen to the first podcast with Jeff, where we talk a little more about how he got into this profession and his deep love and desire to connect with people and help others connect with themselves. So here's the truth. When Jeff agreed to come on again so graciously, I had sent him several questions about marriage and how to build a good marriage because Also coming in the next several weeks is a podcast on divorce, and I wanted to talk about both of those topics, divorce and marriage. This morning, however, as I was listening to another of Jeff's podcasts, Jeff and Jody's podcast, I decided to shift lanes. Marriage would have been a great topic, and frankly, it's a much more comfortable topic for me to talk about. I work with many couples on how to build stronger marriage relationships, and I believe that Jeff could give us all kinds of good advice. But to have Jeff Stewart on my podcast and not talk about betrayal trauma is like inviting LeBron James on and talking about music. LeBron probably could talk about music, but his expertise is in basketball, and it would be silly for me to go down a different lane with him, too. It wasn't flowing for me when I was trying to prepare for this around marriage. So I texted Jeff this morning and said, can we shift lanes? Of course, so graciously again, of course, yeah, we can do that. So the truth is, I didn't realize I was wanting to avoid this topic (laughs) until this morning when I felt pretty strongly that I needed to shift here. I was listening to your podcast on Are You Motivated by Fear or Love? And it just feels important to talk about because— There's all kinds of access to how to build a good marriage. I go to a conference at Brigham Young University every year, and the classes on marriage are just, they're full, and people are sitting in other rooms listening, just listening instead of watching. There's all kinds of access to that. And I hope that people will always spend time trying to find ways to better their marriage. And obviously, so much of what I do on this podcast can help strengthen any relationship, especially a marital relationship. What I don't think there's a huge source of good resources. There's a lot of talk about betrayal, trauma, lack of trust, uh, breaking trust in relationships. I want to create a space where individuals can hear this 
and feel seen and heard in their experience. I just believe you can heal. You can heal mm-hmm. from bad choices, from past pains, if two people are willing to do that. And so I want to give someone a space. I want there to be, I mean, there's obviously that's what you do. You have all kinds of spaces for people to learn and, and heal. But this is another one of those places that I'd like to create. So Jeff, you ready? We're on a run. We're, we're still on the same ocean, just on a different boat. Let's do it. Yeah. And I'll tell you, my daughter, my 14-year-old daughter, who's a huge basketballer, she's going to be so impressed that I got compared to LeBron James today. So I'm totally going to, I'm going to take that one home today and have a good laugh with her about that. Like, you're not going to believe this, honey. (laughs) Respect. I need some respect right now, sis. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. No, you are the LeBron James of betrayal drama. You just tell her that. Get yourself a shoe line. That's awesome. (laughs) Okay. So first of all, Jeff, let's just start for someone who hasn't, who doesn't understand what betrayal trauma is or what it looks like or feels like or what, where that even comes from. We addressed it a little bit on the past podcast. Will you tell us what it is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So trauma, most of us understand what trauma is. It's when we're dealing with something that happens to us that overwhelms our ability to respond. You know, Mm -hmm. we're powerless So natural disaster, car accident, you know, even being mugged by a stranger, things like that. Like those Mm -hmm. are, those are just all some of the most overwhelming experiences you can have as a human. Um, And, you know, a lot of times we, we sort of live in fear that those things will happen to us. You know, we organize our lives to avoid those things, et cetera. But betrayal trauma is what I would describe as a, if those things are like an outside job, things that like we sort of can't, you know, always know, but like we just try and, you know, they, they come from the outside. Betrayal trauma is an inside job. It's it's when in the safety of our connection, in the safety of our relationship, you know, marriage or or partnership or a parent child dynamic. Um, in this context, we'll just use marriage if that's okay. Mm-hmm. In the safety of that relationship, where we've thrown off all self protection, where we're not looking over our shoulder, when there is a betrayal of trust, when there is a recognition, a realization that this person who promised to have my back, to be who they say they were. And there's just so many assumptions and promises and expectations that are built into this. When all that gets totally betrayed or flipped upside down and we can't anymore depend on that, what was absolutely a sure foundation, um, it is one of the most disorienting and overwhelming experiences a person can have. And and I'll, and I'll add this, because there's a dependency piece. You know, if somebody mugs me and they go away, I never have to see them again. If a natural disaster happens, you know, eventually the tsunami or the tornado goes away and we got to clean up and stuff, but like the event's over. With betrayal trauma, it's because it's in an intimate bond that usually involves an ongoing relationship and many times means you still live with the person or you're raising children together or you're connected and tied into each other's lives in so many in measurable ways that there's, it's not post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, it's ongoing future term. It's, a, it's just all the time. And so it's a very difficult thing to experience and work with because it's not like it happens and then it's over and then you pick up the pieces. It's, it's very complex and ongoing. Hmm. Thank you. That's such a good description of it. And, you know, to understand that, the reason that is so destructive is because relationships are built on trust. Mm-hmm. 
Do you, no one, well, that's not true. There's people who are getting married where they don't trust the person that they're marrying. Sure. But if we're entering into a healthy relationship, yeah. there relationships and really any healthy relationship, the foundation has to be trust. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, trust is what allows us to relax. Trust is what allows us to, you know, not look over our shoulder all the time. And yeah. I mean, even, you know, that, that really silly, um, reality show um, where people get married that have never met the person. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, the Bachelor? Oh, no, no, no. It's like, it's one where where they they get set up with a person. They get matched. There's like a matchmaking thing and they actually oh. meet on their wedding day and they oh, get married. Love is blind or something like that. Anyway, so they, um, so they get married. My wife and I watched one season of it, mostly just sort of like it just, we just, it was almost like a train wreck. We couldn't quit watching. But, <laughs> but what was interesting, even in that, of course, you can't trust someone you don't know. So they don't know this person, right. but, but there was an element of trust in the process. They had an element of trust in these, in these experts that were matching them together. And so mm-hmm. even at that level, with something as extreme and ridiculous as like this blind love show, there even still was an element of trust there. So I do think that even in, you know, there is some sort of like, trust that ties us together. It's like a sense of, I've got it. I'm going to take this risk, but I have to know that the risk factors have been reduced and I trust that. So it it is essential. Like we have to, we have to be able to have that, to be able to step into something like this. Then if that is true, Mm -hmm. help me share ways that people destroy, destroy trust. Because we often think of the big destroyers. We think of infidelity or, you know, like massive um, deceit. In fact, it just feels like that's coming out everywhere in right. the news oh, these I know. days. But what are other ways that we can destroy trust in a relationship? You know, one of the one of the most common things that I see all the time in marriages, I mean, I if I had a nickel for every one of these experiences I have, let's say even just around like a uh some sort of a, an injury around uh relationship injury around, you know, childbirth for example, where there's mm-hmm. so it's like when the height of vulnerability is so high but the availability and responsiveness of the other person is so low. That injury is like, I needed you the most and you were the least available for me, right? So I, mm. everything from I was in labor and you went and got a sandwich to yes. uh, you didn't care about how much, how little sleep I was getting and you were taking care of yourself, right? So like, I mean, that that's just the one context of birth stories, but it happens everywhere. It's like when our, um, when our, our need to be, to have someone be there for us. We we're counting on them more than anyone else where life is unpredictable. You are the one that I can count on and you're not there. I mean, that happens every day in marriages and, and, and to some degree or another, that's, that's broken trust. What can I count on if I can't count on you kind of a thing? Yes. Mm -hmm. So good. As you're describing, you know, the childbirth, that is such a, I actually know of a couple of women that, you know, they'd been married almost 30 years and the husband's like, that was 30 years ago. But the wound, she had never addressed it. She'd never talked about yeah. it. The wound was there and it was That's right. It was so loud now, 30 years later. That's mm-hmm. right. And it reorganizes the way you see the relationship. Like I, I can't, you know, I promised, we promised that we'd be there for each other and you broke that promise. And so I am not going to put myself in a position where you can do that to me again. Where I can feel that vulnerable and oh. you can walk out. You, yeah, I will not let myself be dropped again like that. And so it reorganizes the way the relationship dance goes. It's really, and it, and like you said, time doesn't heal it. You have to no. address it. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
other ways as you were describing that, I thought I have another couple that I work with and the husband will often agree to whatever she asks of him. And then he doesn't do what he says he'll do. Right. So it's not big, massive no. betrayals. Like I, he says, you know, he doesn't come home for the night and who knows where he's at. It's He said he would, you know, take the garbage out at nine and then make sure the kids were ready for school by 930 because she was going to pull up at 935 and mm-hmm. they'd agreed to something. And then over and over again, he doesn't keep his part of That's the commitment right. or vice versa. could be mm-hmm. a woman as well, easily. Every relationship is going to experience breaches in trust. You know, it's impossible to not step on each other's toes or not let someone down or through a misunderstanding or just negligence or just selfishness. Like we all are going to do things that will break trust in our relationships to one degree or another to, to, to sort of believe that, you know, you're immune to that is to not really understand what, what dependency and intimate love connection, long-term relationships look like, but they can be repaired. They can be repaired if you understand what happened and how to fix it. Okay. And I want to talk about that um, a little later is how, mm-hmm. how are they re- repaired? Let's say now there's there's been a betrayal of trust. There's there's a lot of pain inside of the relationship, whether it's little breaches of trust along the way or big breach of trust mm-hmm. along the way. And you in this podcast, you were talking about in recovery, trying to recover from those breaches of trust. You talked about objectification, and I thought it was so good. Basically, I want to know what is objectification. And you were talking about, am I doing things out of love or am I doing things out of fear? And then you pulled objectification into that. Mm-hmm. I have heard a lot and taught a lot and studied a lot about lustful object- objectification where we you know, see a person that we are physically attracted to and we objectify them in different ways. But I really appreciated how you talked about objectification um, when it comes to repairing a relationship. Before we go to that, am I missing something that you think would be helpful to put in between trust, betrayal, trauma, and then going to that? Oh, no, not at all. In fact, I think, I think a lot of, you know, broken trust you know, even even some of the more garden variety stuff that's pretty common has has its roots in objectification. You know, so I'll give you a quick example about the the even the coming home on time thing. Yeah, and this happened like last week in my marriage. Um, okay. <laughs> so we you know we had for for years agreed on a time when I would come home and because um, there's always something more to do, right? And so, but now we have one kid at home and life, life's been crazy all summer, whatever. So I was getting a little loosey goosey on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was there was a conversation that came up where where Jody was was like, you know, you're not being consistent with this, and I don't know what to expect. Can we can we kind of reset that? And I realized that really, in a way, that um, me not having the decency and respect for her as a person who has, um, you know, because she's not working outside the home right now, and so she's she's home, she's trying to you know, coordinate stuff with my daughter and dinner and all these things this time of day. And she's just yeah. wanting to know what she can count on. Right. Yeah. So, yes. so, so at a very, at a very simple level, not considering how another person mm-hmm. is impacted by the, by you is really just objectification, right? It's just this object that I'm just going to work around or that I'll just pick up and put down whenever I want. And so the minute that I'm like seeing her as a person, at the minute I, I recognize that 
me coming home, even 15 minutes off of schedule or 30 minutes, whatever it might be, has an impact on her as a person in terms of her nervous system, her being able to settle down, her having things ready. Recognize that there's a lot of other things she probably could be doing instead of waiting around wondering when I'm going to walk in the door. So that basic level of respect for someone else as a person that has different needs, feelings, desires, schedule, temperament, nervous system, all the things is really seeing someone as a human being. And objectification is the complete opposite of that. It's dehumanizing them. So we can do it in a really simple way like that. And the minute that we shift into recognizing them as a person, we'll keep our promises. We'll be more sensitive and more respectful and more aware. It really does elevate our ability to see someone else as a human being that we want to care about and protect. And so I I think that objectification isn't just lusting after someone's body, which is a form of objectification, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's the inability to see someone else as a person who has needs, feelings, a story, other things like that. Oh, my word. That is so good. The reason that connects for me is because I don't think most humans, because I believe most humans are good, mm-hmm. think, oh, I'm going to objectify this person I love the most. I'm, you know, she, she doesn't matter. He doesn't matter. I, I can do what I want. I don't think that's what goes through people's Never. heads. No, not yeah. consciously. No. Yes. But it's like, okay, well, this was, this just happened, or this is important, or I'm providing for them, or I, right. you know, It can go both ways in Mm -hmm. so many different ways. And Mm so for you to call it objectification and and then to put the, when you put the human into the person, all of a sudden they're not flat Stanleys. They're not one dimensional. They have feelings. They have Mm -hmm. responses. And that is what builds trust. That's what, that's what creates a deeper relationship. Jeff, I'm just going to go straight here. The world teaches us have more sex. Be more physically active. Do, you know, make sure you're creating something inside of your relationship. And and there's a space for all of that. But as you were talking about seeing them as a human, I can think of anything that would be more attractive right. than to be connected with someone who sees me right. or understands how their choices are affecting me. Exactly. Yeah. And that goes both ways. I mean, even yes. the other part of this conversation is, you know, even as my wife was asking for that. She wasn't saying, hey, you can't be a human and have things come right. up. Right. She's saying the moment you realize that we're going to be, you're going to be off schedule, that something's going to yeah. change from the, the, you know, the agreement that we have, just let me know, shoot yes. me a text, just pause yes. your session or yes. ask the person to wait and shoot me a quick text. She's like, I'm not unreasonable and I'm not trying to control how you do your job. I just want to be treated like a person. Right. And that's really the core of this. And We can practice this when we're driving in town and somebody cuts us off. We can choose to see them as this jerk in this machine that wants to hurt us, or we can slow down. So we can practice, you know, we can practice humanizing people everywhere we go. And you're right. It's extremely attractive to be seen and known by somebody. All the sex in the world is not going to fix our ability to see someone. No. Absolutely not. Oh, that's that's really good. Okay, so so often in with inside of objectification, I like to think of it or I'll share it as so often I'll hear I do this and this, I do this, I've done all of these things and he's still not happy. 
or she's still, you know, she'll find the one thing that's irritating. And my question often is, are you giving to get? Mm-hmm. Is there a string attached to the, your gift? You know, are you really doing this out of love or is there something you want back because of that? And you and Jody spoke of that in that podcast that I was listening to. I thought it was so insightful. Mm-hmm. Can you share more about that? What what are you giving in fear or are you giving in love? What would love look like and what does fear look like? Yeah, I think it was uh, my wife last night read, read a, a quote from, I think it was Nietzsche who said, if if love stops loving, it was never love, right? It's this idea that like, if if I'm giving something that truly out of love for another person, mm-hmm. and you know something happens or whatever, and I stop loving, then it was never love in the first place. And that's really the, that's really the transactional nature, mm-hmm. I think, of so many of our relationships. It's like, I'll keep loving up to a certain point. Now, it's interesting. I, I've i worked with people where it's like, well, how do I just keep giving? I don't want to be a doormat. That's right. a fair point, right? It's a fair point. Reciprocity does matter in committed relationships. Absolutely. Um, but I still believe that even if even if I have to change what I have to do in a relationship, you know, the giving maybe is too much or maybe I'm enabling something unhealthy or maybe there's... There's a reason that that needs to be adjusted. It's not because my feelings about them or about my offering, my gift has have changed. Like I still care about giving. I would give it no matter what, but maybe it just doesn't make sense. Maybe the most loving thing isn't to continue doing this pattern, mm. but it's not from this place of like, well, if you don't love me back or whatever, then I'm going to withhold my gift. Lo- to me, this this whole idea of, of loving and giving is is rooted in this idea that it's it, it cannot be a transaction where I give to get there and and when you have a healthy relationship I'll just use a marriage for example that is based where both people believe that then it's safe to give and keep giving it's because neither one is ever going to take advantage of that and um there's a beautiful song by one of my favorite artists uh Dennison Whitmer he wrote it about his father when his father was dying, but he, he, the, the song is called take more than you need. And I just, I just, that, that line is just such a beautiful sentiment for a safe marriage, which is take more than you need, right? Like I, I trust you to give and I'll try and I'll give back as well. And when you have two people doing that level of giving, it, it's a very rich and rewarding experience because there's, there's surplus, there's extra, and you're not, you're not transacting every little movement like that. No one's measuring the Kool-Aid. It's, you're so thirsty. I have more. Yeah. Let me give you some more. I've had a lot. I'm yeah. not thirsty. Yeah. yeah. Take more than you need. Right. Yes. It's okay. Oh, my word. I am looking that song up as soon as I'm done. Yeah, you'll I love it. heard it. His whole catalog will blow your mind. He's just a thoughtful. Really? Yeah, person. His, his music is so relational and so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for that. Fear inside of a relationship is often like not spoken of, not someone doesn't think like I'm afraid, but it is felt. Sometimes the person who's acting in fear doesn't even know they're acting in fear. They're just right. trying to do it right. And I think that's probably a key for for us when we're trying to do it right. We're probably 
acting in fear instead of in love. Would right. you agree with that? Oh yeah, I've totally done that. I, I know yeah. exactly what that feels mm-hmm. like. It's and that's it's it's wild, but I mean this may seem like a little bit too you know, stay with me here if I'm splitting hairs, but but that fear can almost turn the other person into an object, right? It 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 turns yes. into I I'm doing this thing and I need I need to get it right, but I need you to see that I'm getting it right. And so yes. you basically just become um a way to reinforce my you know, my insecurity, my fear instead of, uh, and so therefore, if you don't offer that to me now, you know, I'm basically angry at you and upset at you. And I don't, I can't care about how, you know, why you don't accept it or why you are hurt or why this isn't working for you. It's like, no, I just need you to reinforce that right now. And so the fear can drive all kinds of dynamics. And that's, that's a big discussion right there. (laughs) You, and you just, what you just tapped into is when that fear is driving empathy is not in the car. Yeah. It, this is not the about window. the other per- Yes. Mm-hmm. It, this is not about the other person no. and seeing their wound or what's going on with them. It's, do you see me doing something good mm-hmm. for you? Right. I need you to see my performance as acceptable and then I can relax instead of how is what I'm doing impacting you. And that takes a, takes a ton of maturity and humility to mm-hmm. look at how our fear can be driving it. And it's normal. Like I, I, I want to normalize this. Like we want to get it right with our partners. We want to get it right. We want to be successful. We want to feel secure. But man, this if we can recognize when we're anxious and afraid, a lot of the times we turn ourselves or our partners into a performance and we lose that connection. You know, you just reminded me last, uh, either December or January, I'd been to a wedding and it was a vulnerable wedding for me to attend at that time in my life. Mm -hmm. And I went in and I sat, it was a wedding dinner and I went in and sat down at the dinner and, you know, communicated and tried to connect with people there that I cared about. And, um, when it was over, I left to come home and it was snowing and I was driving up the road and I saw this woman and she was snowing and the snow was deep. It had already snowed quite a bit. And this woman was pulling a cart um, in the snow. And she was really struggling to get her cart. I didn't know where she was going. And I just thought, help her. And so I got out of my car and I ran over to help her. And I said, can I pull that? I saw that there was a bus stop down down the ways. And I said, can I pull your cart? Or, or where are you headed? She goes, just to the bus stop. And I said, can I pull your cart for you? And she just talked to me. And I honestly, right now, I can't even remember if she let me pull her cart or not. But that was my genuine response from mm-hmm. me. And almost as fast as that thought came in was, I wonder if anyone from the wedding is going to uh, drive by and see me pulling her card. <laughs> like, they're going to see that I'm a good person. They're going to know that, you know, like this, all of a sudden, this give became a get just right. like that. It's and so easy. It's, it was, it, I didn't, honestly, neither of the, th- I didn't mean to have either of those thoughts. They came into my mind so quickly. And I, because I am aware of that kind of thinking, I was able to be, wow, I feel really vulnerable. That was a vulnerable experience for me. And look at me on the street. I mean, there were very few cars out. I'm looking for someone to give me approval. Like I'm okay. It was a, it was, it turned, my give turned into a get. That's right. 
we're so vulnerable to that. We really are. And yeah, being honest about it puts us back in that human connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where she's not an object, right? Of you, you know, yes. she's this woman's not no longer being objectified as a service project to, to prop you up as a good person. She's just someone you're helping now. That's you can it. Focus and then on her. Yeah. Yeah. And the ability to actually connect with her. Yeah, that's right. It comes back again when I, when I, you know, cut the string. I don't need anyone else's approval. I can just see you and care about you and, That's right. and go on my way. And, mm -hmm. and I really believe that we're all so capable of those experiences, but our fear, our past experiences pop up really regularly as we have just human experiences, daily experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I, I, I think there's, we could talk about this all day long because it's hard to see in ourselves. It mm -hmm. might be easier to see in others, but hard to see in ourselves. Yeah. Okay. So Jeff, what is love? What does it look like, sound like, feel like? I mean, I think that people have been right. Poets and artists and musicians have been writing and singing and painting about this forever, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's that question. I think love basically isn't full of itself. I think love is... It's, it's when we, like, I think like we're talking about, I think love is the ability to really see another person, to see, to see them as a whole person that's, you know, that's got a, a set of feelings and thoughts and needs and desires that are different from ours. And that, you know, that we can be, you know, then, then some of the fruits of that are, you know, kindness and compassion and support and even romance and these kinds of things. Like those are but it's really, I think, the ability to really, truly see another person. In fact, I mean, I read all kinds of stuff on on love and connection and things like that in, in my work all the time. But I'll just paraphrase it now. I wish I had the exact reference. But the, but the sentiment was that, you know, that, that listening to another person, truly listening to another person is is so hard. It's almost indistinguishable from love. Like they, it's like to really fully be seen and, and held and understood by another person is one of the most loving experiences we can have. And I think that that, that when I see relationships working and John Gottman's found this in his research, Sue Johnson, other marriage researchers, and even in repairing and rebuilding trust, it's, it's when you fully can take in the experience of another person and be touched by it, be moved by it. And you're in sync with that person. There's almost nothing better than that. Uh, that really is one of the most secure, loving ex or experience we can have as a person. I think that's really what, what love captures. And I think charity, we talk about charity. We talk about the way God loves. I think they're, you know, so much of what moves us and, and bonds us and, you know, aligns us. We, you know, with a higher power, with God is, is absolutely knowing that we are seen and known. I mean, that is, mm -hmm. that is such a powerful thing as humans. We need that so desperately. So desperately. And I think the absolute truth is that we are seen and known mm -hmm. by God and we need it with people with skin mm -hmm. too. That's right. right now. We just, absolutely. We need that for our, our health. When I'm describing love, I'll hold my arms out as far as I can and say, it's, it's this. Like you have, it's not, I love you this much. It's, there's this much space in love. There's love to learn. There's space to learn and grow and progress and make mistakes and say, I'm sorry and forgive and try again. There's so much space inside of love 
And when, when we can know it's not love, when it starts to get really tight inside of our hearts or inside of our experience, we can know that maybe fear has crept in or, mm-hmm. and, and I think with betrayal trauma, that tighter space feels almost even more comfortable inside mm-hmm. of there. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You mean when there's betrayal, like it shrinks that space? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the greatest uh, discourses on what is love um, was given by Jeffrey R. Holland back in uh, February 15th of 2000. It's called How Do I Love Thee? Have you read that one? Mm-hmm. And yes. Is that BYU? Uh-huh, BYU Devotional. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. goes through and, and outlines this. And, and so back to the shrinking question, he talks about, he's he's talking to dating couples, couples that are not married. And he says, you know, I wouldn't have you spend five minutes with somebody who does these things. And he goes through a list of, of things that really shrink love, break love, make it impossible. And he even talks about at the time, his own marriage to his wife. So at the time, I think they'd been married 37 years or something. He says that these things would disqualify me on the spot to be her husband. Like, mm recognizing that 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 love is something that is romantic love secure love partner love is earned i don't believe that there is an unconditional love in marriage in terms of the trust the security the bond i think you can love someone unconditionally maybe as god loves them from a distance if you need to mm-hmm. and still have healthy boundaries mm-hmm. and i think that's good for us to practice expanding ourselves in those ways for all people. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to that primary bond, that secure bond, that romantic attachment to another person, that is absolutely not con- unconditional. That is conditional. And there are so many things that can shrink and completely break it. And if we if we believe that somehow we're entitled to that or we should have that just because we're married, then we are absolutely going to be impossible to be married to. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me what you mean by that. Tell me what it would look like to feel entitled to that. So if I break my wife's trust, I'll just use my example of the the schedule. Mm -hmm. If I believe that she shouldn't be hurt by that, that she should just love me, that she just see how wonderful I am and how much I'm doing for her and that I should just be loved and I shouldn't care how she feels. Like, you know, you multiply that by two or 300 more experiences like that. And she's going to be diminished as a person. She absolutely is going to be totally shrunk down to feeling like she's nothing and means nothing. Mm. So entitlement around that is, is this belief that I shouldn't have to do anything. I shouldn't have to have any expectations put on me. I shouldn't have to earn or work for or somehow create conditions where somebody can feel seen and loved and safe and connected and respected that they should just basically give to me without me having to give back at all. It breaks the reciprocity and it's completely selfish. Mm. And it makes sense as you describe that because if they've broken trust over and over again, obviously they've lived in that space that that's not something new to their relationship. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when there's broken trust, when, you know, even with one breach of trust, whether it's small or big or whatever, the, the repair process is virtually the same. And it just 
you know, as, as as the you know the bandage has to fit the wound. So like it's if it's a, if it's a much bigger injury, then there's going to be you know more to do. But but the process of you know dropping the expectation that this other person owes me something after I've broken their trust, and it's it's really like shifting and recognizing that I have to restore something. I have to earn back their 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 affection. I have to create safety. I have to do these things to restore and rebuild. I mean, that restitution is critical. And, and without, when there's entitlement or, or, you know, any of that selfishness, then you're not going to do the work to restore anything. You're not going to believe that you have to do anything to repair anything. You just feel like it should just come flowing to you. And that's crazy. Yes. <laughs> it's not how it works. Why would someone believe it should just come? Is it just basically, well, I, I'm not doing that thing anymore. Mm-hmm. So why are we still talking about it? Is it does it come from that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that somebody might see it that way. You know, they could have grown up in a family where there was that type of entitlement. You know, where mm-hmm. they just believe that they shouldn't have to do anything, and that you know they may have seen models of you know people that just basically parents that maybe perhaps just demanded loyalty and love no matter what happens. Um, I've seen that plenty of times. Um, I think sometimes there can be a lot of shame. Person is shame bound and believes that, you know, they have to just constantly be fed a supply of reassurance and adoration and, and, and respect and all that, you know, they need that loyalty all the time and they have to have it. And it's just a dark black hole of need, um, because they can't, they have no interior reinforcement to prop themselves up or to, to have any ability to even self-validate as a human being. So, so you have those kinds of dynamics. So there's, there's lots of, lots of reasons that somebody may just believe or expect and need that so badly. Oftentimes it comes from their own wounding. That's been my experience. Before they ever came in to the relationship. Is that what you mean? Or from, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it can happen in the relationship. Like if, if they've been betrayed by the other person, I mean, you get some complex cases like that where both people have really knocked the wind out of each other and they're both, drowning swimmers. I mean, that happens. I've seen that plenty of times, but oftentimes it, you know, we come in wounded. I mean, I think everybody, you know, just premaritally would do well to really either work with a premarital program or a therapist or somebody read a book or something just to start to examine their own wounds coming in because we bring them and we think we're intact, but a lot of us get banged up coming in uh, to adulthood, you know? That's so true. That's a good way to say it. Jeff, what are as you work with couples who are trying to rebuild trust in their relationships mm-hmm. um generally after there's been some kind of betrayal yeah what what do you see as maybe the leading one or two reasons that would keep someone from being able to rebuild trust there, there's I, yeah I'll give you a couple okay I think that impatience is is huge I think that there is a a fundamental sort of misunderstanding about how delicate and how long this process takes. Everybody wants to hurry it up, including the person who's been betrayed. They feel awful. They don't, you know, they want to, they want to kind of swoop into a place where they don't feel bad anymore. But there's oftentimes a lot of pressure around forgiveness and, and, and quickly forgiving. And, and, you know, we've had some good days. Why are we still talking about it? It's like the, the inability to, to be patient with the process ties into the second thing I'm going to say is like the inability to tolerate pain. 
I, I think that if you're going to rebuild trust, you have to develop and stretch and, and create a capacity to sit with discomfort and uncertainty, both as a person who's been betrayed and the person who's broken the trust. Mm-hmm. Because when something like that happens, when there's been such a breach there, you really almost have to throw out a lot of, of your expectations about how this is going to go. There's a lot of surprises. There's a lot of setbacks. There's a lot of unacknowledged and unmet needs that will come out. And so when people are rebuilding trust, again, if I had a nickel for every time I say, let's, we got to slow this down. We mm-hmm. really got to slow this down. It, it allows people to be more patient, to tolerate and stretch and feel more discomfort. And those are really, really good things because again, getting into the objectification, it allows us to really then start to see the other person, to see ourselves. And, and, and that's where a lot of that healing is going to happen. But when people rush past it, they want to go quickly. They want to get to a place where they can feel relief. Well, and a lot of times that's that becomes almost like a a repetition of the actual problem, which was maybe reaching for something to mood alter or mm-hmm. or trying to escape or avoid something, and you know that creates all the damage. And so we don't want the process to look like the problem. Oh, that is that is so good. And the, the the willingness to just stay in the process. Mm-hmm. So oh, I hear yeah. you say. We stink we stink at that as humans. Yeah. We really do. I mean, even I mean, people can barely stand in the line at the bank without getting on their phones. I mean, we just don't have the capacity to sit with discomfort very long as humans, especially in twenty twenty three. Okay. Really so I, I I I love a challenge like that. I <laughs> when you said people can hardly stand in line at the bank without pulling out their phones. It's because they're uncomfortable, right? Just to stand and oh, yeah. feel the vulnerability of yeah. being there. And they're so used to having. Mm-hmm. So just a challenge there for whoever's listening to this. Find something. And like you pulling your phone out at the bank or wherever you're at, give yourself three days. See see how long you can go just sitting inside, sitting with yourself working through your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions that come as you're not able to distract in one way or another. I'm giving myself this challenge. You, yeah. I hope I run into you to the ba- in the bank. Sometime. Oh, I, we'd have a great conversation. I, I'm going to be standing there yeah. looking for someone to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. We have I, to expand I'll our capacity to, to, to sit with discomfort and bonus points if you talk to someone. I mean, Sher- Sherry Turkle wrote a great book called Reclaiming Conversation. And she talks about how, you know, the draw with texting in asynchronous communication like that is that it really keeps us from having to be vulnerable and deal with uncertainty. Because when you're talking with somebody in real time, face-to-face, you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know what they're going to say next. You don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know any of that. And so there's there's just a lot of um, risk and vulnerability and even small talk with a stranger. But it's a it's a powerful way to tolerate uncertainty and discomfort. And yet at the same time, it, it can be a very satisfying thing to have it go well. And it does most of the time. I agree. Yeah. Wow. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're coming to an end here. I'm I'm picturing a husband or a wife who's just barely found out some really painful news inside of their relationship that they're this person they love the very most had just made what would you say to them they they have no they have no idea they've never had anybody who's dealt with this they haven't told anybody what would you say to someone who's just stepping into 
a betrayal, a betrayal experience? Well, the first thing I'd say is it's not your fault that you got betrayed. First of all, I'd say, don't, don't carry that. Don't, don't spend your energy trying to diagnose how you created this, whether they tell you, you you did or not. That's a very human thing to do to try and immediately wrangle control of this. Cause if I can figure out whose fault it is, then I can somehow prevent it. And usually we'll blame ourselves. Yeah. So, so it's not your fault, first of all. And the second thing I would say is um, get support and get educated. Find, and find, get- find someone, get out of isolation, recognize you're not the only one that's gone through this, get support, get someone to help you start regulating your emotions and, and not being alone in it. Isolation is so punishing. And then as you get educated and understanding what you need to do to heal. And then, you know, you can expand that to understand more about the issues that you're facing, but it's very liberating to know that there are solutions, that there are ways out of this, that you don't have to just sit with this forever. That's really beautiful. Thank you, Jeff. I would ask, you just answered my question that I ask at the end of every podcast, which is what can someone do this week to work on this? You answered that for someone who's just newly finding out that they're in betrayal. Mm-hmm. And I, I really love your suggestions. And anything else you'd like to add to that before we end? No, I just love talking to you. You have great questions. And yeah, just just love your heart and love connecting with you around these topics. That they're, they're so important and you know, we're both very hopeful people and see that that there's that real change is possible and we're not afraid of skirting the work. So I appreciate you digging into some of these hard questions because it's it's possible when you know, you know, what resources to turn to and that and that you're willing to do that hard work, but um it's absolutely worth it. I agree. I just could not agree more. Thank you, Jeff, for making time to come and talk about this. We matter. As human beings, we matter. We are worthy of love. And from the last podcast, you said, do not live beneath your means. Do not live beneath your privileges. Like Mm -hmm. you can have deeper, more connected, more meaningful relationships, even when there's been painful experiences in your relationship. Yep. So thank you, Jen. Mm -hmm. Don't settle. Thank you to everyone at 98 Studios for making this podcast great. We will have many choices in our days and in our weeks. Jeff and I hope you'll choose to do the work. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, share a written experience, or ask me a question, go to coachchristy.life and fill out the podcast questionnaire, and we'll be in touch with you soon. There are no dumb questions or experiences, just opportunities to learn and do the work. Have a great week.